Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Assistant Professor of Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. Joining us today is Dr. Peter LaRue, Associate Professor of Neurosurgery at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. LaRue is a recognized expert in the management of traumatic brain injury. He is currently the principal investigator of the BOOST-2 trial, the first randomized multicenter study designed to evaluate outcomes of brain parenchymal oxygen monitoring following TBI. He is also the senior author of the article, Brain Tissue Oxygen, an Outcome After Severe Traumatic Brain Injury, a Systematic Review, which appeared in Critical Care Medicine, Issue 37, Number 6, Pages 2057 to 2063-2009. Thank you for joining us, Dr. LaRue. Thank you. I thought we would start by asking you to put the problem of uh, traumatic brain injury in perspective. How common is TBI and what are its ramifications in terms of mortality and morbidity for the patient? Well, traumatic brain injury is probably the commonest cause of death and disability, particularly in young people certainly in developed countries and surprisingly even in some developing countries. And so the World Health Organization recognizes it as a major public health issue. In the United States, there are probably anywhere between 1.5 and 2 million traumatic brain injuries a year. It all depends on the year from which you get statistics and how exactly head injury is classified. Severe head injury, which is the group of patients who are going to be admitted to ICUs and will be likely to be monitored represents a small percentage of that, probably in about the 10 or 12% range. Having said that, um, among patients with severe head injury, the mortality will vary depending on a variety of factors, including age and other injuries, and also depending on centers, but might be anywhere between 10 and, and 30%. Uh, among survivors, very few are left without any form of disability. And this is what has the major impact on society, both in uh, direct costs in the individual's disability and the care that's required, but also indirect costs in the loss of income potential. And estimates uh, after severe head injury uh, range up to $60 billion a, a year in the combined direct and indirect costs are lost. So traumatic brain injury, even the moderates and mild, can have significant uh, consequences um, in that there's probably no head injury that is without any form of cognitive or behavioral change, even minor. And I think everybody today is very well aware of the uh, interest in concussion and mild traumatic brain injury and the uh, consequences of cumulative traumatic brain injury. Um, when we talk about brain tissue oxygen monitoring or intracranial pressure monitoring or other forms of monitoring, that really always applies to those patients with severe traumatic brain injury, which is, a, as I said, about 10% of the uh, patients uh, who have head injury each year. And that's a pretty good segue in then um, having to put things in perspective for the monitoring aspect. And I think uh, almost everybody um, understands the concept of intracranial pressure monitoring and uh, the need to measure CPP, ICP. 
but perhaps not as many people are familiar with brain tissue oxygen monitoring. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about the monitor, how it's placed, and what, what it measures. What does it mean? So at Penn and at most institutions around the United States and elsewhere in the world who use brain tissue oxygen monitoring, it's used as a complement to intracranial pressure monitoring. It's not a replacement for it. The two work together and provide information that together, I think, provides a better handle on how the patient is doing. So the simplest indication is if you believe a patient should get an intracranial pressure monitor at the same time you place a brain oxygen monitor. So the protocol that we use at our institution is if somebody with a traumatic brain injury is admitted with a Glasgow Coma Scale of 8 or less, in other words, an indication for an intracranial pressure monitor, they get a brain tissue oxygen monitor. Um, the monitors are placed in pretty much the same way as you would a parenchymal ICP monitor. And for the most part, parenchymal ICP monitors are placed in the right frontal region. Perhaps the difference with the brain oxygen monitor is you really want that monitor to be in what appears to be normal white matter on your admission head CT scan. So there might be circumstances where there's a contusion in the right frontal lobe which would preclude placement of a brain oxygen tissue monitor and instead you might place it in the left frontal region. So the goal is if you have somebody who you think should have an ICP monitor and we know what those guidelines are. Surprisingly, a very small percentage of patients who actually should get ICP monitors even today in the United States do. Um, and Why is I, that? Why? I think there is a uh, certain nihilism that exists among many physicians about severe traumatic brain injury, and that, that is understandable. Some do badly. Um, but it might be difficult to predict that immediately on, on admission. It might take a day or two before you have a better handle. Um, economic reimbursements do not in any way provide an incentive for any surgeon, whether it be a neurosurgeon or a, or a, or a trauma surgeon or even an intensivist, to place a, a monitor. Um, it, it shouldn't be that. Um, and uh, we do fall short in the uh, uh, placement of ICP monitors according to the guidelines. There obviously can be other reasons which are medical. In other words, the patient has a, a coagulopathy and, and, and so forth. But uh, it, it's a a smaller number than we think are actually receiving ICP monitors according to what is indicated from the guidelines. Um, but that is what we use for placement of a brain oxygen monitor. All right. And so we place this monitor, and I know that ICP is supposed to be 20 or less, and more than 20, I guess, is bad. What, what P-brain O2 do we look for? What do the numbers mean? So it's not entirely clear what brain oxygen really measures. The best... A uh, description of it might be the product of cerebral blood flow and the arteriovenous tension of oxygen. So it's not entirely a blood flow monitor. It is also not entirely telling you what's arterial oxygen or venous oxygen, but really the diffusion of oxygen from artery to vein and uh, gives some insight of to both oxygen need and utilization without specifically measuring what's been used. And I always draw the, the analogy to um, if you look at cerebral perfusion pressure, which is part of why we want to know intracranial pressure, in essence, it's going to tell us what's going through the blood vessel. It's not going to tell us what's getting out of the blood vessel, across the endothelium and through the interstitial space and into the cell, where the oxygen is needed primarily at the mitochondrial level. The oxygen monitor gives us insight into that. And so if you think about economic theory and supply and demand is what is going to 
determine the success of your business. You could have a great product with a lot of supply, but you won't make any money if there's no demand for it. Now, while the oxygen monitor is not exactly measuring demand, it's giving you a little bit more information than just simply the supply side alone, which is what cerebral perfusion pressure is giving you in a very simplified form. And I think when you start to look at brain metabolism after head injury, it is fairly complex. And understanding intracranial pressure and also cerebral perfusion pressure is really just the beginning of that equation. I think when you complement it with oxygen monitoring, you get some more insight into how healthy the brain is and what's happening. I don't think you can use either in isolation. One has to interpret them together. Um, we certainly have seen a fairly large number of patients who have normal intracranial pressure and cerebral perfusion pressure who still are hypoxic in their brain. Um, and how low can you go? How low will my business go well, before I go bankrupt? If, if your oxygen's zero and it's sustained at zero, you're likely to be brain dead. Okay. We are treating patients when brain oxygen goes below 20, and we define that as compromised brain oxygen. Some institutions use a threshold of 15. Where people have examined relationships between brain oxygen and other um, measures, whether it be of ischemia or metabolism, and it could be through microdialysis or PET studies, certainly below 15 is associated with other markers for cerebral ischemia. And, and this is and this is in humans, not in, in humans. In humans. Um, below 10 is almost inevitably associated with, with something bad happening in the brain if you use other measures. And certainly when you look at outcome studies, patients who have a brain oxygen less than 10, particularly for more than 30 minutes, have up to a fourfold greater likelihood of both mortality and, and death, uh, both mortality and unfavorable outcome. Less than five or six is almost inevitable, particularly if it's prolonged and not responsive to therapy. So the, the, there are some physiologic correlates with that. People have looked at the amount of oxygen that would sustain mitochondrial function, it's about 1.5 millimeters of mercury at the mitochondrial level. And that corresponds to a brain oxygen, which is really in the white matter of about 15 millimeters of mercury to maybe 20 millimeters of mercury. Um, there have been studies using seven Tesla MRIs, which again looks at oxygenation in the brain. It's in that 15 to 20 range. Um, where there where, where physicians or, or investigators have measured other reasons for low oxygenation in the brain, either through PET or microdialysis, oftentimes the cause of hypoxia in the brain is associated with a diffusion abnormality rather than a perfusion abnormality. So again, this speaks to how the oxygen monitor might complement the ICP monitor. Okay, and that's a nice explanation of how low we can go. Can the monitor be used to assess uh, adverse outcomes with luxuriant flow? What if I have too much flow to my brain? Will the monitor read a P-brain O2 of 50, and is that bad? It's a very good question, and I don't think we know the answer. So a lot of patients may have a high oxygen. I think greater than 50 might be called supranormal, and it may well be associated with hyperemia. We've seen a handful of patients who had a brain oxygen greater than 100, and we honestly don't know what it means. Um, oftentimes, when we see very high brain oxygens, 
and a high intracranial pressure, we have treated patients to actually reduce cerebral perfusion pressure, either through increasing ventilation so that you're changing the CO2 or adding something like nicotapine to drop the blood pressure slightly, and then you see the ICP come down and the oxygenation perhaps improve a little yep, bit. This is in the TBI patient. This is in the traumatic brain injury patient. Now, I think with both an ICP monitor and brain oxygen monitor, there may not be enough there to answer the question because they're not really answering what's happening to autoregulation, which in some patients is disturbed and some patients not, or some places it's locally changed and, and so on. You can, through ICP waveform analysis and looking at RAP or PRX index, get a sense of that, but that requires some sophisticated computer software. But it, it has been useful in patients with supernormal, and, and while we use 50 as perhaps a, a level above which we consider it supernormal, we still don't have a great handle on that. But in those patients, as I said, who have high ICP, their treatment for high ICP may not be so much mannitol as it is more vasoconstrictive or reduction in perfusion pressure to then through whatever changes in order regulation are there to then reduce ICP. And that's kind of similar to the treatment strategy for cerebral edema with fulminant hepatic failure and too much flow, too much pressure. It's kind of interesting because certainly that has not bought on the TBI world, probably because we weren't measuring it up until now. Um, well, let's get back to kind of a more common problem, which certainly is going to be the patient with a high ICP and a low P-brain O2. So uh, what do I do with that patient? How do I go about treating that patient? So in the phase two trial that, that we have, we have really sort of four treatment arms. And obviously one is ICP and brain oxygen are less than 20. You don't really have to do anything other than your normal measures to, to keep the patient comfortable and as a normal home That's, that's ICP is less than 20, P-brain O2 is greater than 20. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. The second would be the ICP is greater than 20 and the brain oxygen is greater than 20. And you can have ICP greater than 20, brain oxygen less than 20, and, and around those parameters, four basic blocks. Sure, sure. There are different treatment strategies. In the simplest environment, if your ICP is high and your brain oxygen is low, your first treatment may well be, can you reduce the intracranial pressure? And you would do that in whatever standard fashion you follow at your institution. Um, now, that might involve more sedation if they're on a ventilator, head of bed elevation, ventricular drainage, osmotherapy, whether it be mannitol or, or hypertonic uh, saline. Um, or it might be changing the perfusion pressure if the patient is going to respond to that. If you have an individual with low brain oxygen and normal intracranial pressure, well, you're not really going to use treatments then to manage ICP. There, the therapy might be, can we control their temperature more effectively? Is there any increased metabolic demand, uh, whether it be through seizures or shivering if you've been using hypothermia, for example? Can you augment their oxygenation by changing pulmonary function, whether that be increasing FiO2 or changing ventilator volume or adding some PEEP, or could it be that even increasing CO2 through vasodilation that leads to better blood flow and improved oxygenation, or increasing uh, perfusion through uh, vasopressors, or even adding blood in some circumstances. When we've tried to, to evaluate what works, there's a, in the order of about 25 to 30 different therapies. If you consider 
uh, sedation, head of bed elevation, mannitol, osmotherapy, different drugs, surgical procedures, and so on. It's about 25 to 30 therapies. Many are being used in combination. Not all work efficiently. And uh, sometimes you might end up doing surgery. Now, the surgery, if the ICP is high, could be the evacuation of a hematoma, ventricular drainage if there's hydrocephalus, or a decompressive craniectomy. What we have found is that in patients who have a low brain oxygen, meaning less than 20, if you give treatment and they respond to treatment, the likelihood of survival is over 80% in the very severely injured, and this would include patients with an injury severity score of greater than 16. If they do not respond to therapy, the likelihood of survival is in the 50 to 60% range. And is this a, is this a single center pen test single study? Single center study. Which your current study, I assume, uh, wants to validate and kind of just Correct. make more generalized. Well, we're Correct. going to talk about the Boost 2 trial in a few minutes here. Um, one of the things that we, you mentioned as a uh, possible therapeutic intervention for raising the P-Brain O2 is transfusion. And that makes, that makes intuitive sense. You published an article a couple years back, also in Critical Care Medicine, I think, um, that showed that 75% of people who were transfused had a rise in their P-Brain O2. But interestingly, I think, the point that's a little hidden in the manuscript is that 25% had a drop in their P-Brain O2. So that's, that's clearly bad. Yeah. Why? Uh, another good question, and I don't think we know the answer. And as I'm sure most trauma surgeons know, there is perhaps no absolute consensus on what's the most effective resuscitation strategy. Do you transfuse to a hemoglobin? Do you transfuse to something else, whether it be lactate or oxygenation? I think what we have found is that there is a relationship, if you look at all patients, between hemoglobin levels and lung function levels and oxygenation, but it may vary in individual patients. Certainly in the paper that you refer to in, in, in critical care medicine, where we transfuse patients, um, three quarters had an increase in oxygenation and, and, and one quarter did not. And that's been replicated in two or three subsequent papers it may be dependent on the patient's sex and age. It may also be dependent, and this is well described, the age of the blood that's transfused, although that is not clearly delineated specifically when it comes to brain oxygen. But it would seem that the younger the blood is, the better it is at improving oxygenation. A second interesting phenomenon we found is that usually the first unit of blood causes a rise in brain oxygen. The second unit of blood, if you give it, does nothing. Hmm, you see no change in the oxygenation. So it might be just a small shift in hemoglobin is important. We have tried to look at that a little further by using microdialysis in addition to brain oxygen and ICP monitoring in the subarachnoid hemorrhage population, where again, how to transfuse patients is not known uh, there was a recent consensus conference on the critical care of, of subarachnoid hemorrhage, which was in, in Paris last year, and this was one of the topics discussed. And I think the end of that consensus conference could agree that we cannot use data in general critical care, whether it be medical or surgical. So, for example, the TRIC trial to apply to subarachnoid hemorrhage patients who share some pathophysiologic similarities with, with TBI. And in a survey that was done that included physicians in, in neurocritical care programs throughout the United States. There was a very wide range at when they would transfuse patients. And again, this is in subarachnoid hemorrhage, 
patients, but you can extrapolate some of the information in TBI. In an individual with subarachnoid hemorrhage who was grade one and was awake and alert, who has no evidence of delayed cerebral ischemia, most physicians were happy to transfuse at a hemoglobin level of around about eight. In patients who were grade four, obviously sick, and who had evidence of delayed cerebral ischemia, transfusion thresholds were as high as 11 to 12. And there is some observational data that suggests among the subarachnoid hemorrhage population, if your hemoglobin is kept above 11 for the duration of your hospital stay, you have a better outcome than if it's lower. Now, this is a little bit of a dilemma because there are other studies, again, predominantly in subarachnoid hemorrhage, but there have been one or two published in traumatic brain injury as well, where giving blood can be bad for the patients. Most of those studies are retrospective observational studies, so it's hard to know whether the blood that's given is simply a marker for the disease severity or it's really an independent factor associated with outcome. We have tried to look at that by using propensity analysis, which sort of balances out the risk factors among the different patients where you look at the two treatment arms and those who do or don't get blood. And it turns out, at least in the subarachnoid hemorrhage population, that if you have evidence for delayed cerebral ischemia, you don't get a deleterious effect from blood. It might actually be beneficial. When you don't have evidence for delayed cerebral ischemia, you're more likely to do badly. And delayed words, cerebral ischemia being defined as? Some symptoms that develop either a decline in the NIH stroke scale or the Glasgow Coma Scale with evidence for vasospasm. Not necessarily brain oxygen monitoring. Not necessarily brain oxygen monitoring. And so I think that speaks to cerebrovascular reserve. In other words, patients who have good cerebrovascular reserve probably don't need the blood. Mm -hmm. Patients who have poor cerebrovascular reserve may need the blood. And this is where it then asks the question whether having a brain oxygen monitor could be valuable in trying to decide who needs blood in those circumstances. In other words, you're not giving the blood to correct the hemoglobin. You're giving the blood to correct the oxygenation, in this case, the end organ being, being the brain. I had started that conversation by, by talking about microdialysis and subarachnoid hemorrhage. What we have found is that you really start to see energy dysfunction in the brain, both in uh, a low brain oxygen and an increased lactate pyruvate ratio. And the way we defined energy dysfunction was an oxygen less than 20 and an LPR greater than 40. When the hemoglobin drops below 9, you really don't see much when it's around 11, hardly anything around 10, but below 9 you start to, to see that energy dysfunction in the brain, which is a much higher threshold than the 7 mm -hmm. advocated from the TRIC trial. Those are in poor-grade subarachnoid hemorrhage patients, and that might speak simply to they don't have good cerebrovascular reserve, and perhaps they need a slightly higher hemoglobin to ensure oxygenation in the brain. So I think this is still a very unanswered question. I think giving blood, you still have to decide on an individual basis. I think you have to look at more than simply what is the hemoglobin. Particularly in the TBI population, it may have to do with what is their tissue perfusion and oxygenation. And there are other measures than simply hemoglobin for that. And it might be that the sicker patients need a slightly higher hemoglobin. The proviso being there that you might have to use the correct blood to transfuse, whether it be leukodepleted in less than 14 days of age, I think is still perhaps unknown. Maybe the ABLE trial in, in Canada will start to answer for that. So it probably is a very wide area for research because it, there's more to it than simply if the hemoglobin is above a certain number, you're going to do okay. 
Um, it's like any drug that you give, they have good effects and bad effects. And very clearly, sometimes giving blood is bad, sometimes giving it is good. The oxygen monitor may allow you better insight into deciding when it's going to be good or bad. So the, the pressure monitor gives you pressure, and which correlates potentially to flow, potentially. The brain oxygen monitor gives you the regional oxygen tension where the monitor's placed, and you already alluded to the fact that it needs to be placed in a normal part of the brain, away, well away from the area of injury. Is there a role for, in addition, uh, measuring global brain oxygen? So should we be measuring jugular venous bulb oxygen tension to look at perfusion over the entire brain and then try to bring into that pressure and regional flow? Yeah, and again, there are two philosophies. One might be the more monitors you have, the more information, the better. On the other hand, as you know, you have to be able to react to the information and react accordingly. And we, we all know what's happened with Swan-Gans catheters. Um, it does seem that if you have a Lycox in normal appearing white matter, it is a reasonable estimate of global oxygenation. Um, we have certainly seen patients who have low brain oxygen measured by a regional monitor and normal oxygenation on a global measure that being jugular venous saturation. So they are probably pluses and minuses to both monitors. We tend not to use jugular bulb monitors as frequently as we used to, partly because they're more difficult to use. Sure. They're a little harder to insert, um, and they are and can be somewhat unreliable. And then probably 50% of the times your readings may not be as accurate as you think. Mm. You also would like to place that monitor in the dominant jugular vein if you can. Now, you don't always know that. You can look at a CAT scan and sometimes see which jugular foramen is bigger. But ideally, you're going to get a better answer if it's in a bigger um, jugular vein. There has been a tendency to move away from invasive to non-invasive monitoring. And so one of the other monitors that perhaps provides better insight into global flow might be continuous EEG. It's still a nonspecific monitor, but it can tell you more than just ischemia. It's going to give you all their seizures, non-convulsive seizures, and a variety of other things. But, but now you need a neurologist to just sit there now, and look now, at now it. Now you need a, a neurologist. Although with some of the newer compressed spectral analysis and computerized algorithms, you get a, a reasonable printout that, that even a neurosurgeon could perhaps read. But nevertheless, it still is difficult to do. It's labor-intensive. It's costly. It's non-invasive. Mm -hmm and that might be an advantage. Um, there are, are point-in-time radiologic assessments. It could be PET, and in some institutions they have the luxury to be able to do that, but not everybody does. It could be SPECT, which is qualitative rather than quantitative. Uh, perfusion CT can give you information that's valuable. Again, it's qualitative information, and it uses a fair amount of contrast and, and also radiation. And in some institutions where there's IOB approval for it, Xenon CT, which may be the, one of the more reliable measures of quantitative blood flow, which can give you regional flow and you can start to really understand uh, blood flow. How about uh, transcranial Doppler? Transcranial Doppler is a good surrogate for flow. It's not always accurate. It can be degraded depending on whether you get an adequate temporal window or not. So, for example, in somebody who has a craniotomy and has had a subtemporal craniectomy, there's often uh, 
some form of obstacle to an adequate acoustic signal. It might be that the, the neurosurgeon put a layer of gel foam there and you're just not getting a good signal. Um, if you get a good signal, the middle cerebral artery is reliable. The other blood vessels are perhaps not as reliable. It is observer dependent. But if you have uh, you know, a blood flow velocity that's greater than 200 in the middle cerebral artery, you usually have vasoconstriction. And blood flow velocity less than 120, you don't. And it's giving you a sense of the adequacy of flow when you start to look at mean blood flow velocity, pulsatility index, which can give you some insight also into intracranial pressure as well. So it's, again, it's a non-invasive monitor. It's a single point in time. There are companies that, that market and, and, and sell continuous TCDs that you can hook onto the head. It's most reliable in the middle cerebral artery. I think it, in, in, in all of that conversation, you can have, hear the need that one single monitor is probably not enough, or perhaps alone won't give you all the answer. It can and should always be augmented with other monitors. And every institution is going to have different resources. Um, so an ICP monitor, brain oxygen monitor, are very easy to use together. It may be valuable to add something else if you want to understand blood flow. In most institutions, that will be a standalone, point-in-time radiologic study. Mm -hmm. um, Continuous EEG will be useful in some institutions, and in the subarachnoid hemorrhage population may be very valuable. Um, jugular bulb oxygenation certainly is another modality, but it's difficult to use. And then you're left with other monitors for blood flow which are invasive. Um, so for example, uh, laser Doppler or thermal diffusion. The thermal diffusion is also dependent on temperature. So if a patient's temperature is more than 39 or so, it's not going to give you a reliable read of what blood flow is. Those then are regional monitors. So there really is not an efficient global monitor that's not invasive other than continuous CEG, but then it's got its bandwidth issues if you're going to transfer all the information to an epileptologist mm -hmm. or just simply how do you get the, a good readout to, to use. And so while we're talking about monitors, you mentioned the Lycox, which, of course, is the uh, brain oxygen monitor, uh, particularly the one that we use here at Penn. Are there other brain oxygen monitors? And if so, uh, how do they differ? So there um, really is only the, the Lycox now that's commercially available in the United States. There are a handful of other oxygen monitors that are uh, in use but not marketed, I believe, in the U.S. They are in use in, in Europe from far smaller companies. There was a device very similar to the Paratrend, which was called the Neurotrend, which is no longer commercially available. Um, it was a brain oxygen monitor. It used a slightly different methodology to measure brain oxygen. In, it had a slightly higher threshold or a different threshold compared to the Lycox. So the, the NIH-funded trial that we have is standardized to the Lycox part because that's what is really used exclusively now in, in the U.S. How many centers are using it, roughly? Common, not common? It's hard to say. I think that probably most major level one trauma centers will have a Lycox monitor. Whether they use it in every patient is a different matter. Um, in, in, in trying to get centers together for a phase three trial, we could probably reliably find 30 centers that are using it on a frequent basis that would satisfy the ability to perform a trial. They probably are the same number of centers that use it, but not necessarily frequently. Um, and there are some centers that will 
um, you know, get a brain oxygen monitor and use it hardly ever. Um, like any device, there's a learning curve to its use, and there's a learning curve to trying to understand what the various numbers mean. And there are circumstances, and certainly during our, our learning experience, we had patients whose ICP was 25 and their brain oxygen was normal, and we were trying to decide what to do. And there is this concept now of, of permissive intracranial hypertension. We have a patient who doesn't look that sick and his ICP is a little elevated. You don't necessarily go chase that ICP number if some other modality mm -hmm. suggests their brain is healthy. And brain oxygen is one of those monitors. Because as we all know, some forms of treatment for intracranial hypertension can be bad. So going back into the late 90s, Claudia Robinson did a trial where she randomized patients to cerebral perfusion pressure-based therapy or ICP-based therapy. And in trying to keep the perfusion pressure up, patients were getting a lot of pressors and a lot of fluids, they end up getting worse lungs and having no difference to their outcome. Um, other treatments for intracranial hypertension, uh, uh, hyperventilation where you get uh, vasoconstriction, in some can be bad. In others, it might be very beneficial, particularly if they vasodilated and hyperemic. Um, Manitol has its own problems, and some patients are going to work, and others you might get, get side effects. The, the DECRA trial, which looked at decompressive craniectomy, while there are many issues about the trial as a whole, I think one of the things it did show us is that there can also be side effects from that surgery. They're very effective in controlling intracranial pressure, but in that population didn't make a big difference to, to outcome. Um, so, so every therapy we have has side effects, and every therapy has, has good and bad. And I think the value of the different monitors is starting to piece those therapies together so that you really select out the patients who most going to benefit from a specific therapy and target it to them so that they're going to gain from it rather than sort of throwing out a therapy and hope that it works. And so how I look at multimodality monitoring is in, in, in a way as the culture and sensitivity for an infectious disease doctor. I think some of the time, we, the way we treat uh, a head injury is, is sort of in the Sir Alexander Fleming era. You have a head injury, well, we'll give you these drugs. Is the same as an infectious disease doctor saying, so you have a fever, we'll give you penicillin. Well, he's going to be right some of the time, but a lot of the time he's going to be wrong and he's not going to know why. And what the infectious disease people have done is they found out exactly what the organism is, and there are many, many organisms that might cause the fever. And at the same time, he's figured out in that particular organism which antibody is going to work most efficiently, and that's what you then get. And that's what we should be doing in head injury. And I think as we understand it more, both from imaging and biomarkers, but also from various monitoring tools, you understand the physiology better, you can now start to say, this is the type of head injury you have, and now I can tailor my therapy to you. And if I'm giving you a therapy with these monitors in place, I can then see that you're actually responding to it in the appropriate fashion. And that is what will lead to, I think, a better evolution of, of head injury care, not hoping that the therapy we give works because we've defined severe head injury by a symptom that is a Glasgow coma scale less than eight. It'll be the same as defining heart disease as angina. It's not. There's many more forms to that pathology. But with the better information, you can better target and individualize the therapy. And so you brought up several points that I wanted to touch on. One was that um, the studies that you reviewed in the article you published, the one that we uh, alluded to at the beginning of the podcast, universally included only young patients. There were no studies with anybody older than age 35. 
And I think as you already alluded to, some of these therapies can have detrimental consequences, particularly in the elderly, if we're going to start hanging pressors or uh, potent cardiac medications, et cetera. Um, and I, we'll talk about the BOOST 2 trial and, and the uh, in eligibility criteria in that regard. The second thing that you just referred to was the possibility that the changes in PBRAIN02 or changes in ICP are more epiphenomenon and not really causally linked to the patient's death. So as an example, we know that someone who's hypoalbuminemic will do worse than someone who's not hypoalbuminemic. But in general, giving that guy albumin doesn't really change things. He's got millions of other issues going on that we haven't even addressed. So with, with those kind of concepts in the background, let's talk about the BOOST2 trial, because I think that really is going to be a pivotal study. Um, if you can bring us up to speed as far as uh, pre-existing work that led up to this trial, its design, what are you guys doing, and uh, where do things stand? So the, the BOOST2 trial uh, is NIH-funded. Um, it's a multiple PI study. Uh, Raymond Diaz Aristia, uh, Ross Bullock, Nancy Temkin, uh, Randy Chestnut, and myself. Um, it started out as four centers, Penn, University of Texas Southwestern, uh, University of Washington, and University of Miami. We've expanded that now to more centers in part because it's been difficult to recruit patients. Like all TBI trials, um, you can screen a lot, but because of eligibility criteria, you don't necessarily enroll a lot of patients. And there are other uh, large trials going on, for example, PROTECT. So we're a little bit behind on enrollment, but I think we've enrolled 15 patients. How long have you guys been live? Uh, it's just under a year, but the first six months was really startup. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen is we've been steadily increasing the enrollment now. Um, we've actually doubled monthly enrollment over the last two or three months. So we're looking to enroll four a month now over the next 18 months and, and or two years really and reach our target. Um, and at the same time, we sort of analyzing the various endpoints to see how we can gather information with, with, uh, with limited information, smaller ends, or just looking at certain physiologic data. What's relatively unique about Boost is it's really the first time that we've used different monitoring modalities to guide therapy. Um, and in, in essence, it is answering some of the questions that um, I think all of us want to know, um, will a monitor make a difference? Well, just, just to step back for a second for those who are not familiar with it, what, what monitors are going in and what are we doing? So in, in Boost, patients are randomized to receive ICP-based care or ICP and brain oxygen-based care. Every patient gets both monitors. The brain oxygen monitor data is blinded in those who randomize to just ICP-based care. We collect all that physiologic data, and what's reasonably unique about Boost is we have a, a computerized download system, so we get minute-to-minute -minute physiologic data that we can then interrelate and look for a lot of other variables later on. So, so it's probably the first trial in the neurointensive care unit or in traumatic brain injury where we're trying to answer does a monitor and the information it provides and how you act on it make a difference to outcome. This may answer some of the limitations that have existed in single-agent neuroprotection trials, because almost every single single-agent trial in TBI has failed when it gets to a phase three trial. And the, and the answers for that may not be that the drug is inefficient, but just the selection of the patients or the heterogeneity in the patient population is what limits the efficacy of the drug. 
monitoring might allow us to tease out the heterogeneity of patients and respond then to their physiology. Assuming that the uh, treatment based on the monitor is somewhat regimented, so... Yes. So, so a very formalized, standardized approach has been developed for this. It has taken a lot of discussion. Um, and as you can imagine, there is always a lot of discussion and opinion because there are many things that we do in traumatic brain injury for which there isn't level one evidence. We're basing it on sound physiology, however, and that in many respects is going to guide what we do. The, the primary objective of BOOST, however, is not to demonstrate efficacy of therapy, but to demonstrate the feasibility of reducing the burden of hypoxia. So all of the observational data suggests that low brain oxygen is associated with worse outcome. What we're really asking in BOOST is if we add brain oxygen-directed therapy, will we reduce the burden of hypoxia compared to patients who receive conventional ICP-based therapy? So, so that means then all clinical endpoints are secondary endpoints. The primary Correct. endpoint is just the measurement of the oxygen level itself. Correct. It's, it's, a, it's proving that you can make the physiology better through this management strategy and also adhere or be reasonably compliant with the management strategy. Secondary endpoints will include outcome analysis. The, the trial falls, or is hopefully going to lead then to a phase three trial where we will answer the question of is there a difference to outcome? But to be able to do that trial, which would, you know, it, it's almost a tenfold increase in, in the number of patients that are required, and obviously the, the cost of that goes up. The NIH wants to know one, can you recruit and do it? And two, is it actually making a physiologic difference? Because if it makes a physiologic difference, one can infer that it might make a clinical benefit, but that would at least allow you to do the, the sample size analysis to, to analyze that. And you guys are enrolling all ages, adults? It is all ages. I, I think it is 18 to 80 years. So in other words, you're including the elderly? We're including the elderly in large part because we want to make it generalizable. Sure. And also the, the epidemiology of head injuries changing. I think we are seeing more elder patients present with head injury. Um, which is simply a phenomenon of the aging of the population. The health of the elderly is better now than it was 50 years ago, so they are more active in doing things. Um, if you look at the admissions to any trauma center, nearly half of them are from falls, and some of those are an elderly. It is a slightly different pathology, obviously, than a motor vehicle accident in a 20-year-old. But I think it helps perhaps answer the question about targeting therapy because if you think about head injury and the way we have in the past is it was a Glasgow coma scale less than eight you had a severe head injury this is what you do you might want to differentiate that into pathologic it's diffuse axonal injury it's an extradural hematoma it's a subdural hematoma it's severe brain swelling it's traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage it's a big contusion they're very different pathologies you could take it a little further and say well, okay I've got a 25 year old healthy male with no comorbidities and he's got a GCS of six. Now I've got a 75-year-old obese male with multiple comorbidities. They're very different in how they're going to respond, particularly to some of the therapies, because some of the therapies we give to help the brain might actually hurt the other organs. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, is where monitoring helps a little bit in, in understanding that balance. So you prevent the collision between what's happening in the brain and elsewhere in the body. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, series of questions you've raised, and it 
clearly this one trial won't be powered sufficiently for any subgroup uh, to answer them definitively, but I agree with you entirely that it's, it's a start. And again, gets back to those first 35 studies you reviewed in your paper, all of which were young people. And you know, as a trauma surgeon, I'm left wondering, what do I do with a 65, 75-year-old who fell? Just as, a, as an aside, uh, somewhat unrelated question, for, the, for those who want to get into research and do something similar, one of the hardest things about research, at least in the trauma side, is informed consent. Now, in your BOOST 2 trial, you just mentioned that all patients are going to get both monitors anyway. Everyone's getting a Lycox and an ICP monitor. And that, if the hospital happens to own a Lycox, a level 1 trauma center, will almost be their practice pattern, such that informed consent is not needed for insertion of the Lycox, other than what would usually be obtained for insertion of a monitor anyway. Are you guys... Did you just get IRB approval then to collect the information that the monitor would collect regardless? Well, it's a, it has been a very long and, and, and uh, difficult discussion as to how best to design it because consent is a major issue. One of the advantages we have in Boost is the time to start treatment is up to 12 hours after head injury. So it gives a little bit of time to find patients' family and get informed consent from them. So we do not have any waived consent in Boost. That is unlike Protect, where the time to starting therapy is within four hours of injury and waived consent is part of that uh, a trial. There are different regulations in different states when it comes to waived consent. Um, we did a survey at the through the Penn ER and found that approximately 50% of patients who came through the PEN-ER, this was 900 patients, would agree to a randomized control trial. We set up as a very hypothetical question. Um, and, the, and the advantage of Boost is that we can get consent, hopefully, within 12 hours. But, but getting consent, uh, either way, informed consent, is different. If you say, you know, will you please sign this piece of paper so I can put a monitor in your brain, I'm doing research right now, a lot of people are going to say no. But if you say, will you sign this piece of paper, I'm simply going to collect the information that this monitor is going to read anyway, and the doctors have determined you need the monitor anyway. That's an easier consent to get. Yes, it is. The, the difference here is that it's not that we're just collecting the information. We have to do two different management strategies. So while the placement of the monitor occurs, we still have to get consent for the difference in management, and that's what they have to agree to. Um, so the monitors are being placed as would be done in the normal course of care. And of the four institutions, they all use them as part of their standard of care. Um, what happens is the Lycox is not connected for the first two hours. And that is, again, reasonably consistent with how many of us practice. We might have it connected, but we don't necessarily regard that information as reliable because you want the, the monitor to settle down for mm -hmm. an hour or two. Um, and, and then... What we have to also figure out is once the monitor's in and we've got consent and randomization, who's blinded to oxygen? Because if you've started monitoring oxygen and then you blind them, you've already biased the study slightly. And, and we actually had to design a, a device to block out the Lycox monitor that can be locked in place. And so when you do clinical trials, you have to think in many, many ways. Mm -hmm. We originally naively thought perhaps, oh, we'll stick some black tape over it. And then we realized, well, no. And, nurse will tear it off to look and see what's happening. That's going to bias the study. The study nurse has access to the oxygen data, and only she has access or he has access to that through the computerized system we use. So they can make sure that the devices are using adequately. But the idea was that you'd be placing your usual monitors, 
and we decided as a group to default to parenchymal ICP monitors. Some places they use ventriculostomy catheters as the default ICP monitor. We, we elected to use parenchymal monitors and a Lycox. You would then have the time to get consent, which you needed for the treatment side of, arm, of the arm. Um, but it is one of the major channels, challenges with any clinical trial in head injury is establishing eligibility, reasonably easy, finding next of kin to get consent. And particularly if you're looking at neuroprotection where you have a small time window, that can be a challenge. And as we boost as 12 hours, we actually increased the, the, the time as well. In other words, if somebody came to the hospital with a Glasgow Coma scale of 10, and in the ensuing 20 hours deteriorated to a Glasgow Coma scale of six with a bad head injury and contusions, and then you were going to place a monitor, they could still be eligible for the trial. Because really what we're looking at is the primary outcome is that physiologic efficacy of treatment rather than the clinical benefit of treatment. And when do you think you'll finish enrollment? Uh, if we enroll, uh, probably over the next 18 months to two years. We would like to increase enrollment. We have to obviously make sure we do because the NIH, as we all know, is always going to watch how much money they're spending. And if you're not able to adequately enroll, they're they either going to cut the funds off or say, well, interpret what you have yeah. now. Um, you're looking to a target of roughly 182 yeah, 200. for the boost two study. If we go into boost three, it's about 1,400 patients. Uh, in the, we've already got a plan for boost three. The NIH actually approved us money for a planning phase, and the 30 sites in boost three, some in the United States, some elsewhere. But we sort of put that on hold until we get a little bit more from the phase two. Because again, I think it would speak to feasibility of recruitment and ability to maintain an adequate oxygen level based on the therapies. All right. Well, I think we probably took up enough of your time for the day in discussing traumatic brain injury, and I want to thank you again for taking the time to join us. We've been speaking today with Dr. Peter LaRue regarding monitoring of the brain-injured patient. I would like to thank you again for taking the time to share your views and compliment you and uh, the rest of the neurosurgeons uh, involved in this work on your ongoing work in this field. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Babak Sarani.